Well, let us pray. Heavenly Father, once again, it is our, our privilege indeed. You know, it is our passion that we could come to your word, that we might know you and knowing you that we might be changed. Changed from glory to glory. Changed in our love and in our hope. Changed in our endurance. And all these might find their perfect work in Christ our Savior. So we do now pray that you would come by your spirit, Lord. And as we seek to understand better your word, that your spirit would teach us. That he would come and open our ears that we might hear Christ. That he would come and open our eyes that we might see Christ. That he would come and open our hearts that we might receive Christ. Oh, I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you in the pardon of their sins, that this would be the day that they would come by faith to Christ, that they would hear and that they would see and that they would receive him, Savior and Lord. May this be an effectual word this morning. May it all be to the glory of your praise, the glory of your name. We pray it in our Lord's name. Amen. Well, this morning we began a new series as we will take our time and go through the gospel of Mark. Normally, if you've been here with us um, before, if you're a regular tender here at East Point Church, normally we would have someone reading the scripture for us. But this morning what we're going to do is a little something different, and that is we're going to do just an introduction to the book of Mark. Um, and so as an introduction, we'll be looking at various scriptures and various, various passages as we seek to understand the better, understand better the gospel of Mark, um, who it is that wrote it and why Mark wrote this gospel. There is a key verse in the gospel of Mark. I'd like to highlight it for you, what I believe to be the key verse. Indeed, this verse will be key to us understanding the gospel of Mark as we go forward. It's found in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 42. In Mark chapter 10, in verse 42, we have Jesus here after he has engaged with James and John concerning their desire to find, a, to be appointed to the first place, to the highest seats of the kingdom as Jesus comes into his kingdom. And as Jesus kindly but effectively rebukes them, he says in verse 42, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We've entitled this series of messages through the gospel of Mark, a a king's ransom, a king's ransom. And what what is a ransom? Well, a ransom basically is the price that is demanded for the release of captives. A price that is demanded for the release of captives. And if you've been paying any attention to the news for the last couple of years, then this idea of ransom has come up frequently as we hear of the pirates. The pirates just off the coast of Africa, particularly off Somalia. And as these pirates have terrorized the, the shipping industry just off of Somalia in Africa. And they've often taken captive oil and, and shipping uh, um, frigates and, and these ships that are carrying people and from countries and from companies. And they've taken, they, they've, they've boarded these ships and they've taken these ships captive and taken these people captive and hold them for ransom. And these pirates in Somalia have made millions upon millions of dollars. As they have required payment for the release of these ships, for the release of these employees and the crews on these ships. Just last year, an oil company paid nearly $7 million. They dropped that money. The the pirates have them fly over and just drop the money. $7 million. For the release of the captives and the oil that was on that ship. This is not anything new from the beginning of civilization. People have found it profitable to take people captive and and demand ransoms. People have taken wives and husbands and children and even rulers captive in order to gain financially from the extortion and from the terror. In fact, there is a common phrase that we refer to as a king's ransom. What's a king's ransom? Well, a king's ransom is the amount of money that someone would be willing to pay if the king was held hostage. You can imagine that that would probably be quite a bit more than the pirates of Somalia would get for holding an oil tanker hostage. How much money do you think that Israel would have paid if David had been taken captive? How much money do you think Israel would have paid if Solomon had been taken captive? How much would England pay for Queen Elizabeth? How much would Saudi Arabia pay for King Abdullah? I mean, these amounts would surely outstretch whatever oil companies and shipping companies are willing to pay for their crew members. 
How much would you be willing to pay for your freedom? You know, the, the worth of an object is determined by how much somebody is willing to pay for it. That's how you determine the worth of something. The worth of something is determined by how much somebody is willing to pay for it. Somebody came to you this morning and said that King Abdullah is being held hostage. How much would you be willing to pay to release King Abdullah? Not very much, I assume. But Saudi Arabia would be willing to pay a king's ransom. Because he's worth that to them. How much would you be willing to pay for your freedom? Most of us rarely, if ever, really think about our freedom and the cost of our freedom. But those who find themselves living behind bars or living in oppression or indignation and find themselves in those situations probably think often about their freedom and how much they would be willing to pay in order to gain their freedom. Sure, they would pay an immeasurable amount in order to have their freedom. How much would you be willing to pay for your freedom from sin? Or something even more grave. How much would you be willing to pay for your freedom from the pain and the penalties of hell that is justly due to you for your sins? How much would you be willing to pay to have your sins forgiven? To be redeemed from hell. How much is it worth to you this morning? To God, our freedom from sin, our salvation, and our redemption is more priceless than silver. More priceless than gold. Or any such thing for our redemption, for our freedom from sin, for our, for, for our release from captivity to sin. God was willing to pay a king's ransom. A king's ransom. He was willing to give his own son in exchange, in exchange for our redemption. You know, a king's ransom is a lot of money. But imagine if the king is the king of kings. Imagine if the king is the one who is king of all. Imagine if it's the creator of the universe. Imagine if it is the one who is over all and in all. What would be the price if the payment was actually the king's own son. You realize that in the beginning in Genesis, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, 
that in, in falling into sin, they plunge themselves and all of creation and all of us into captivity to sin. To captivity to sin, captivity to death. And no one, no one has been able to extricate themselves from this captivity. Every human being comes into the world a slave to sin. Leon Morris puts it this way. He says, if I can say it reverently, God, if he wants us back, he must pay a price. The great teaching of the New Testament is that he has paid that price, beloved. He has paid that price for he has redeemed us. Christ has become our redemption. Christ is our ransom. Our salvation is so precious. And Christ even more so. That God would put up his own son. As our ransom. That God would put forth his own son. As our redemption. The son of God. As our ransom. This is the message of the gospel. Christ has come into the world to pay the price so that we might be redeemed from sin, from Satan, from hell, from the wrath of God. Do us for our sins. Christ, our ransom. This is the message of the gospel. This is the message of the gospel of Mark. And this is why we are referring to our series through Mark as a king's ransom. Because Mark sets Christ before us as our ransom. The son of God who has redeemed his people from their sins. So we'll take this brief time to look at the gospel, a general overview, and we'll ask two questions. And hopefully, by God's grace, we'll answer them in light of the fact that Christ is our ransom. The first question we'll ask concerning this gospel is, who wrote the gospel? The second question that we'll ask is, why did he write this gospel? And as we unpack who wrote it, and as we unpack why he wrote it, by God's grace, we'll draw from the fact of who wrote it and why he wrote it, some implications, some gospel implications for our lives and set the stage for our ongoing discovery of the gospel of Mark. But the first question, who wrote the gospel of Mark? Well, tradition tells us that his name in the Greek was Marcus, Mark, being in a 
Roman Greek speaking atmosphere, this is probably what they refer to him as Mark. But his given name, his, his Jewish name was John. And so they refer to him as John Mark. This is the name that you will see him referred to throughout the scriptures most of the time. He is called John Mark. Mark was probably a young boy during the time of Jesus. A young boy. And so, therefore, he would be familiar with the life of Jesus. He would be familiar with the person of Jesus. But there is no evidence that Mark actually had conversations with Jesus, though he knew of Jesus and was around Jesus. How do we know that he was probably around Jesus? Well, because Mark's mother was Mary. And Jesus enjoyed having Mary's around. And here's another one. Mark's mother was Mary. And Mary was a disciple of Jesus. She was a disciple of Jesus and she was fellow co-laborers with the apostles. And we understand this because in Acts chapter 12, we are told that the apostles met at Mary's house, the mother of John Mark. So apparently she was a woman of means. She was a woman of resources and she opened up her house for the fellowship of the saints. In Acts chapter 12, you might remember there that Herod had killed James, the brother of John. He had killed James, the brother of John, and, and now he had imprisoned Peter. And the saints of Jerusalem are afraid and they are scared because they know that James has already been killed and now they're fearing for Peter's life. And so what do they do? They do what saints ought to always do. They gather for prayer. And where do they meet? They meet in Mary's house. They meet in Mary's house, and as they are praying for Peter, God miraculously opens the prison doors, and Peter is able to walk free from the prison. And where does he go? You guessed it. He goes to Mary's house. Apparently, this is not the first time Peter has been to Mary's house. Apparently, this was a common gathering place. And when he gets to Mary's house, he knocks on the door. Mary doesn't answer, but who answers? Her servant, Rhoda, which again reminds us and informs us to some degree that this was a woman of means. She had a a house large enough that all of the saints in Jerusalem who were gathered there could meet in her home. And she had at least one servant, Rhoda. And so there the saints of God are gathered in Mary's house praying for Peter. And Mary is washing the feet of the the saints. And suddenly there comes a knock at the door and God brings the answer to their prayers to the door. Can you imagine the impact that this type of scene would have on a young boy 
John Mark, a young man. How often he must have heard the saints in his home praying. How often he must have heard the conversation of the disciples and his mother and all of the other saints as they're beseeching God. Imagine the impact it had on John Mark. As the saints are praying, Peter knocks on the door. Oh, this should remind us of the influence that we have amongst those who come into our homes. How often have we opened our homes for the saints of God? How often are we willing to wash the saints' feet? And particularly if we have young ones in our midst, how often do they hear the saints praying in your home? What is the conversation like around the dinner table? Is it about the glory of God? Is it about the impact that the gospel is having? Or is it just filled with frivolous gossip? Or do the children hearing us beseech God? Do we understand the impact the gospel could have upon the next generation even as the present generation just gathers in homes to pray to sing to share a meal to rejoice you want to know the impact it had on John Mark you just read down to the end of chapter 12 And it says that John Mark, that young man, Mary's boy, went on mission with none other than Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. No doubt the desire, the flame for missions was sparked and it was fueled. In his mother's home. Because the saints gathered there. To pray. So Mark goes on mission. The Bible says. He goes on mission with Barnabas and Paul. And he goes on this first missionary journey with them. And we see that in Acts chapter 13 and verse 5. And yet apparently young John Mark is not ready. Young John Mark apparently didn't count the cost of all that was involved in going on mission. And apparently it was just a little too rigorous for him. And halfway through the mission, John Mark returns to Jerusalem. He abandons Paul and he abandons Barnabas. And he runs back home. When Paul and Barnabas get back from their first missionary journey, they get refreshed. They collect themselves and they're set to go on their second mission. And as they are preparing to go on their second mission, Barnabas says, let's go get John Mark. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. Paul says, no way. Notice what he says in Acts chapter 15 and verse 38. 
as they are set to go on their second mission. Paul refused. Says, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Paul said, fool me once, shame on me. Shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. No, no, no. So there is a great disagreement. There is a great disturbance between these two co-laborers in the gospel. These two missionaries come to a head on the discussion of shall we take along with us John Mark? Barnabas says, yes, he must go. Paul says, no, he must stay. They can't come to an agreement. Seems to me that Barnabas must have believed that blood was thicker than water. Because the Bible tells us in Colossians that John Mark is Barnabas' cousin. That's his cousin. So apparently, Barnabas has in his mind, Auntie Mary isn't going to take it lightly if I leave my young cousin behind. Now, Paul, I don't mind dealing with you, but I'm not trying to go talk to Aunt Mary. John is coming. You know, when I was a little boy growing up in, in, in Michigan, uh, we used to get whoopings. You know, y'all get spankings now, but. We got whippings. And uh, I remember one time my father lit out after my older brothers because I was a young boy, probably about six or so or seven. And we were walking through the woods, walking through trails as we always did. And apparently I stepped on a yellow jacket's nest. You know, they burrow in the ground. And we know about them up there, but I stepped on one. And these yellow jackets came screaming out of there. And they jumped all over me and my older brothers took off. And left me with my short legs trying to make it home. With these bees all over me, all up my clothes. We get home and my father see me screaming and running. And he started beating these yellow jackets all over me and ripping my clothes off. And after he had calmed me down, he lit at my brothers. Don't you ever leave your little brother behind. Here is Barnabas saying to Paul, no, no, no. We're not leaving my young cousin behind. So they can't come to an agreement. And what happens? Barnabas takes John Mark with him. And Paul goes on and he takes silence. And then ultimately picks up young Timothy. Thankfully, beloved... Barnabas refused Paul and took John Mark with him. 
And apparently, as we read through the Bible, apparently Paul was thankful later on as, as well. And when Paul reached the end of his days and was languishing in a Roman prison, waiting his final judgment, he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter, he tells Timothy, all have abandoned me. I'm alone in this prison. All have abandoned me. Luke is the only one that I can still count on. So Timothy, my time is short. Come and see me quickly. But then he says, and when you come, bring John Mark. Because he is useful to me for the ministry. I think Paul, thank God that Barnabas didn't leave John Mark behind. Apparently, apparently, John, apparently Paul had forgiven John Mark for his lack of faith and apparently John Mark had forgiven Paul for his lack of trust. And there we see again the power of the gospel on display because the gospel is never more demonstrated than when the saints of God are forgiven one another. Not only was Paul the better for it, not only was John Mark the better for it, but the church has been the better for it. Because forgiveness, as we saw with love, is always the high road. It's the road that demonstrates the gospel. It is the road of reconciliation that reminds us that above all the people in the world, the church of Jesus Christ is to be a church of second chances. God gave Mark a second chance. Because God gives us second chances, third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances, chances upon chances. Barnabas didn't give up on John Mark. As Barnabas understood, that Christ doesn't give up on us. And neither should we give up on each other. You know, it's interesting that Timothy would go on to be a disciple of Paul. And tradition reminds us that Mark goes on to be a disciple of Peter. In fact, at the end of 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter calls Mark his son. And it is from Peter that we believe that Mark got most of his information for the gospel that he wrote as he spent time with Peter toward the end of Peter's days in Rome. And how appropriate it would be for these two who understood personally and intimately what it meant to be forgiven. For not only had John Mark abandoned Paul and Barnabas, but you remember that Peter had abandoned the Lord. Peter 
knew what it was to pull back. Peter knew what it was to feel the guilt of having abandoned his Lord in the midst of his trial, in the midst of the tough circumstances, to draw back for your own safety and for your own good. But do you know in in Mark chapter 16, as the women go to the tomb of Jesus and they don't find Jesus, but they find the angel. You know what the angel says to the ladies gathered at the tomb? The angel says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples. And then she says, and Peter. Go and tell his disciples, but especially tell Peter. Tell Peter that all is forgiven. Tell Peter that all is well. Tell Peter that his Lord is risen and his Lord wants him. Tell Peter that the Lord's love covers a multitude of sins. Go tell the disciples that the Lord is going to meet them in Galilee. But you especially tell Peter. Because... It's the message of the gospel, beloved. No matter where we've gone or what we've done, the gospel says you can come home. There is another chance. There is another chance. And so Peter spends the last of his days in Rome continually to to minister to the Romans. And apparently Mark is there with him for these last days and he takes it upon himself to begin to write down an account. An account of Christ to be used ultimately as an apologetic tool for witnessing to those in Rome, both Jews and primarily the Gentiles. So he spends time with Peter getting The words from Peter, understanding the life of Christ as Peter experienced it. And as he himself probably heard it in his mother's home from the other disciples. And he takes it upon himself, moved by the Holy Spirit of God to write down. This gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And so when you read through Mark, you'll see that Peter not only plays a significant role in the gospel of Mark. But understand that what you are reading. For the most part. Are the thoughts and the understandings of one who was there, an eyewitness to Christ, even Peter himself. And you understand then why Mark wrote the gospel 
which is our second point this morning. Who wrote it? It was Mark, John Mark, the disciple of Peter, Mary's son, missionary with Paul and Barnabas. But why did he write it? Why did he write this gospel? Like any of the other gospels, we can discern there's a central message, a central theme from the gospel of Mark that gives us insight into the purpose and plan for the writing of this gospel. For Mark was writing primarily to show that Jesus was the son of man, the Messiah, the son of God who has come into the world to suffer and redeem those who were lost. In the gospel of Mark, Jesus is given quite a few titles. He is called the teacher. He is called rabbi. He is called son of David. He is called son of man. He is called Christ. He is called Lord. But arguably, the most significant title that he receives is the Son of God. This is important. It's important that we see the importance all throughout the gospel. We see it even in the first verse where the the gospel begins. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Son of God. We see it at Jesus' baptism in in chapter 1 and verse 11, where the Bible says the voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, son of God. We see it with the demons. As Jesus is about to cast the demons out in chapter 5, the demons understood who he was, even when all those around him did not. The demons say this, what have we to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? At the transfiguration, as is recorded in Mark chapter 9, as Peter And James and John and Christ are on the mountain of transfiguration and the glory of Christ is revealed. The Bible says in verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. In chapter 15 and verse 39, As Jesus is suffering on the cross and his passion is there for all the world to see. In chapter 15 and verse 39, the Bible says, And when the centurion, one of the guards who was standing there, stood facing him, saw that in this way Christ breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Why is this important? Because we understand that Mark is writing primarily for a Roman Gentile audience who will see that Mark is not concerned with genealogies. There are no genealogies. There are no rituals. Unlike Matthew and and Luke, there are no shepherds. There is no manger. There's not even a mention of Joseph. The question in Mark is not so much how Jesus was born, 
but rather how he lived and who he was. And Mark is reminding the world and particularly those in that setting that this is Jesus, the Christ, the son of God. The son of God. And therefore, Mark's point here is not to build a huge case for the lineage of Jesus as Matthew and and, and Luke does. But rather, what Mark intends to do is show by Jesus' power and life that he is indeed the Son of God, the one worthy of worship, the one worthy of all praise and adoration. The Lord of glory. And so he doesn't, he doesn't take his time to build these long arguments. He says, I'm going to show you what he did. I'm going to prove you, I'm going to prove to you that he is who he said he was by what he did. And so this, this morning, I, if I could put the picture in your mind that if Matthew and Luke are long, drawn-out, epic films, like a king's speech, the kind of films that Philip likes to watch, then Mark is the fast-paced, fast and furious summer blockbuster, like X-Men, the kind of movies Reggie likes to watch. Mark is moving. Mark is fast-paced. He moves from scene to scene. He moves from action to action. In fact, the most distinctive word in Mark is the Greek word euthus, which is translated immediately, straightway. Immediately, immediately, immediately. The transitions that Mark makes from story to story, from account to account, he often uses the word immediately, immediately. In fact, this this word right here, immediately, is used more times in this short gospel of Mark than it is used in all of the rest of the New Testament combined. In fact, in chapter 1 of Mark alone, it is used 11 times. As you read through the gospel, again, afresh, notice how often Mark uses the word immediately. Immediately. Here's a couple of examples. In verse 10 of chapter 1, immediately he saw the heavens opening. In verse 12, immediately the spirit drove him out into the wilderness. In verse 18, immediately they left their nets and followed him. In verse 29, immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon. Immediately, immediately, immediately. 
If, if we could look at the other gospels and see just how much time they take up with the teaching of Jesus, we can look at Mark and see that Mark is not, not so much concerned with the teachings of Jesus. He's not so much concerned about what Jesus said as he is concerned with relaying to us what Jesus did. So Mark doesn't have long discourses. Doesn't have long discourses like the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't have Jesus sitting around and spewing forth a whole lot of parables. But what he does have is all that Jesus did and how he moved powerfully, how he performed miracles, how he cast out demons, how he made a difference in the lives of those he came in contact with. Mark is big on action. He reminds us that Jesus was big on action. And this should remind us also that the Christian life is not just in words, beloved, but the Christian life is in deeds. Mark reminds us, is a stark reminder to us that the gospel we preach must be backed up with the lives that we live. James reminds us, does he not, in chapter 1 and verse 22, let us not be hearers only, but doers of the word of God. Doers, because this is Christ, particularly in the gospel of Mark. He's not just teaching, Christ is doing. This is the gospel that we preach. It's not just what we say with our lips. It's what we do with our hands. It's what we go with our feet. Paul reminds us that we are to adorn the gospel with our lives. Imagine that. That the gospel that we preach is to be adorned with the lives that we live. Perhaps I can put this picture in your mind. If, if the gospel is a beautiful woman, then, the, then our lives should be a finely tailor-made dress that highlights her beauty and femininity. If the gospel is a beautiful woman, then... Our lives must be the gold hoop earrings that highlight her well-done hair. If the gospel is a beautiful woman, then our lives must be the nail polish that accents her well-manicured hands. On every occasion, our lives are not to distract from the gospel. They are to bring attention to the gospel. People ought to see our lives and be more attracted to the gospel of Christ rather than repulsed by it. 
When you see Jesus in Mark, as the Bible says, he's going about doing good. The point is that he is making himself and the gospel all the more attractive to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. Mark reminds us, and if that is the case with Jesus, how much more should it be with us who desire nothing more than for people to see Christ? And so our lives should adorn the gospel that we preach. Mark reminds us that Jesus talked the talk. That Jesus walked the walk. And ultimately, Jesus walked what he talked. And so should we. And so should we. As we go through the gospel of Mark, we'll break it up in two major sections. There's chapters 1 through 10. There's the first section. And then the second section will be chapters 11 through 6. In chapters 1 through 10, we see that Christ is the servant God. That's what we'll see. We'll see that he is the Christ, the Messiah who has come into the world to serve, to give, to to serve, and not to be served. He is the one who has come to serve those who need spiritual healing. He is the one who has come to serve those who who need release from spiritual oppression, who need release from physical oppression. He has come into the world to be the suffering servant. And so it's fitting that the end of that section, as we read in the beginning, that Jesus says, even the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve. And the first 10 chapters of Mark is the Son of God doing just that. He's serving humanity. He is serving to the glory of God. Then in chapter 11, the, the Christ who is the servant of God moves into the final stages of his time on earth and he becomes the sacrifice of God. He is the sacrifice of God. He is the Messiah who has come to enter into the experience of humanity so as to redeem, even ransom us from our sins. How fitting it is, how fitting it is that the key verse would be sandwiched right there at the end of the first section and at the beginning of the second section. That Christ himself would say to us, That the son of man came into the world, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a sacrifice, as a ransom for many. Christ, our ransom, a king's ransom. You know what John Mark wants us to know? that Christ is the one who has given himself for us. 
He wants us to know that Christ is the one who has come to set us free. This would have been good news to those Christians gathered in Rome. This would have been good news to the slaves in Rome who were held captive. Thousands upon thousands of slaves would hear that here is the Son of God come into the world to serve. But not only to serve, but he has come to set free those held in captivity to sin. And even under the penalties of death. This would have been good news to those, but it also would have been amazing news to the rulers of Rome. As they would hear that true greatness, true greatness, truly the son of God who has come into the world, not to be served, but to serve. Showing the rulers and the authorities of Rome that true greatness is not in how many servants you have, but true greatness is how many you are willing to serve. This is what Mark would have us to know. That Christ has served more than any because he has ransomed so many. Christ, our ransom, a king's ransom. The Jews and the Gentiles alike, beloved, would have been amazed at this message. But even more so than them, we ought to be amazed at this message. Because in Christ, I am free. Because in Christ, you are free. Every time you read in Mark of Christ healing somebody from some physical ailment and setting them free from the pain and misery, you say, I'm free. Every time you see Christ freeing somebody from demonic oppression, you can say, I'm free. Every time you see Christ reminding people that he has come to be a ransom for his people. You can say, I am free. When I was growing up in a little Baptist church, we used to sing a song. We don't sing it much often anymore but we used to sing a song and we used to sing it loud and it's one of those songs that you can just sing over and over again Satan had me bound but Jesus lifted me Satan had me bound but Jesus lifted me Satan had me bound but Jesus lifted me singing glory hallelujah Jesus lifted me. I'm so glad that Jesus lifted me. I'm so glad that Jesus lifted 
me. I'm so glad that Jesus lifted me. Singing glory, hallelujah. Jesus lifted me. That's what Mark would have us to know. The Son of God has come into the world to pay your ransom, to buy you back so that you and I could say, Jesus lifted me. Glory, hallelujah. Jesus lifted me. Let us pray. Lord, we are so glad that Jesus lifted us. So, so glad that our Savior came into the world to buy us back, to ransom us, to redeem us so that we could sing glory, hallelujah. Jesus lifted me. Father, it's my prayer this morning, even now, that everyone here would know the joy of being redeemed, even lifted in Christ Jesus, of being set free from sin, set free from punishment, set free from the pains of hell because Christ has lifted them. Be with us now, Lord. May this be true of us today. May it be our joy as we study the gospel of Mark together these coming months. We praise you and we honor you. We magnify you in Christ, our Savior and our ransom, we pray. Amen.